this is an angry show. And I don't mean that as condemnation. I, I mean, um, at the very, very end, not not to, I mean, but I feel like you sort of have to get to the end. You know, when the, when the Verna figure, this, this supernatural figure, she offers this deal to, to Roderick and Madeline Usher. You can have it all and your kids will pay the price. And, and that struck me that that's some, that's some fuck you, baby boomers. Oh, can I curse on this? Is that? Is yeah. That... Yes, you can. Okay. All right. All right. All right. Sorry. Sorry. No. I mean, sorry. No, no, sorry, no. mom. <laughs> Welcome, friends, to episode 290 of the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm filmmaker James Bailey. And I'm writer Luke Elliott. And this week we discuss the second half of Mike Flanagan's 2023 series, The Fall of the House of Usher. And joining us upon the chamber door this week is Bram Stoker, award-winning author of The Fisherman, John Langan. Welcome, John. Hi, everybody. Thanks for having me, guys. Thanks for joining us. This was a fun project right around Halloween, and I hope that you enjoyed watching it as well. We want to start out by asking John, what is your history with Edgar Allan Poe? And also, has he been an influence? Because you're a horror writer. Has he been an influence to you? What is his standing in the horror community? Oh, I think he's a, a foundational figure. And I, I think that he is, is one of those, and he's a foundational figure in American literature. And to a large extent, I, I mean, I think you could even argue in French literature, the French French translate him and the Russians get him. And so, so Poe's influence, you know, sort of disseminates throughout, throughout world, uh, world literature. Speaking personally, I have a vivid memory of buying a book of Poe's short stories with an introduction by Vincent Price. And um, that seemed to make the book even scarier somehow. And uh, the, it was, you know, it was a paperback with, with teeny tiny prints in it. But I think it was when I came to high school and then college, I guess, really college was was where we read Poe. We read Poe in my freshman English class. And we read him very attentively. And we read stories like The Mask of the Red Death and Lygia uh, with a great deal of uh, of attention paid to the, 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 the descriptions that Poe makes of, say, landscapes or, or really structures, buildings. And I became really fascinated by, by Poe. And Poe has just sort of remained with me. And in a sense, he's a more foundational influence for me than Lovecraft, whom I, I came to a bit later um, and to my I respond to on a, a kind of intellectual level, if you will. But I, I think with uh, with Poe, there's that sense that there's something a little bit more primal, at least for me as a writer with Poe. Uh, I contributed a story about, gosh, about 13 or 14 years ago to an anthology called Poe that Ellen Datlow edited. Yeah, it was 2009 because it was the bicentenary of Poe's birth. And I contributed a story to that that was a riff on, on The Mask of the Red Death that was really directly inspired by that freshman English class and, and our reading of the, of the Mask of the Red Death. So yeah, Poe remains for me just a, a present. And I teach him, I teach high school English. And so I, I teach Poe every year. And um, it's one of the people you'll hear teachers say, what I love about teaching is that my students teach me things or, you know, that being in the classroom teaches me things. And and I, I find that continues to be the case with Poe and in particular, reading things, a poem like The Raven within the last couple of years of teaching and reading that poem, that's kind of opened up to me in ways that it never had in the past. And to, to the extent that I now think it's, it's one of the great poems in the, in the language, but, you know, we can talk about that later. 
<laughs> you mentioned Vincent Price as well. Uh, are you a fan of the Roger Corman adaptations of Poe's work? How can you not be a fan? What kind of monster is not a fan of the Roger <laughs> Corman adaptations? I mean, they're cheesy, sure. But um, they had, you know, most, if not all of them, had, as, as I recall, had scripts by Richard Matheson, where Matheson, in, in some ways, you know, there's it's kind of analogous or or at least there's a parallel between what he was trying to do, take these Poe stories and expand on them, knit them together. And there's a there's a kind of um, a precedent, I guess, for what Flanagan is up to in the series. I love that. I, I wanted to ask you, what is the name of that story? The Mask of the Red Death oh. story. It's called Technicolor, and it's in my uh, second collection of stories, The Wide Carnivorous Sky and Other Monstrous Geographies. Uh, Technicolor was supposed to be the original title of the anthology, of the collection, but my uh, my publisher was worried that the term was copyrighted, and, and oh. I think Technicolor still would have been a great title. But... <laughs> That's really cool. I, um, I'll make sure to add that to our bookshop. We have a bookshop, and I, put, I already put The Fisherman on there. Thank Which, you. by the way, I haven't finished yet. I am over halfway through. I'm loving it. I just, you know, I've been Thank traveling you. and covering this. I haven't been able to get all the way done with it yet. But I've been playing this game called Dredge in the past. I don't know if you're familiar with this video game, but it's I've a heard love- of it. Yeah, yeah, it's like a Lovecraft uh, influenced fishing game, like fishing sim, where you're riding around in a boat and fishing. And I was like, I need to go back to that game and boot it up while I'm listening to the because I've been listening on the audio. <laughs> Oh, and the audio is fantastic. Yeah. That guy really is good. just great. He's such a great narrator. I'm so grateful for him. Yeah, and I was like, this would be a perfect pairing, I, honestly, because it is. You can see their Lovecraft influence. It's creepy. It's got all this fishing stuff going on. Uh, highly recommend it to our listeners. If you if you like Poe, if you like The Fall of the House of Usher, you should check out that novel. And it's an award winner. It is. It is. Through um, through the grace of God, I suppose, because of that, that particular Stoker ballot was... It was just crammed full of talent. Not that it, it always isn't, but I, I guess when it's your book, you're aware of, I, you know, I was trying to remember everybody who was on the ballot, Paul Tremblay and Stephen Graham Jones and and uh, Bracken McLeod. And, and I know I'm forgetting, I can't remember if Almakatsu was on it too, but it, it was just any of the books on that ballot could have won and, and no one could have complained. You know, none of yeah. us could have complained. It was so... I, I just felt very fortunate that uh, that the, the the voters picked my book. So I wanted to say I also started your book. I'm not quite as far as Luke is, but when he when he pitched it to me, he said it's a Lovecraftian story and it's called The Fisherman. And right away, I started being a film having a film background. I started thinking about a, a film that was hugely popular recently. And now I know your your work came first, but. Uh, the lighthouse came to mind for me. It's very different, but I, I had to ask with a story that's kind of about some tangential uh, topics. Are you a fan of that film? Oh, I love Edgar's work. I, I I'm a big The Witch, um, Lighthouse, uh, The Northman. Um, uh, even though I think The Northman, I mean, the end of that movie is like the most Viking metal ending ever. You know, <laughs> two naked Vikings yeah. fighting in a volcano. You know, like the Vikings <laughs> would have watched that movie and been like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, past the mead horn or whatever. Um, yeah, no, I, I really like Edgar's stuff, Edgar stuff. And I, I like the, you know, he's this, this strong sense of, of, um, I don't know, artistic vision, which, which changes a little bit for, you know, depending on what story it is that he's telling, but, um, yeah, he's, he's, I'm always fascinated by any artist who is true to what I, you can sort of see a particular vision that they are true to or chasing or however you'd like to put that. And, and Eggers, 
Um, he's definitely he's definitely one of the the contemporary filmmakers that I'm most interested in and excited by. So Nosferatu next, I guess. I'm looking forward to I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> uh, we, that's going to be something we're we're excited to get into. We're going to cover Dracula around the same time, I think, and really get into it. Um, but pivoting now to Flanagan. Um, you know, we talk a lot about these auteurs, right? And like you're talking about Eggers, like definitely that kind of a filmmaker. Um, and I'm wondering where where Flanagan falls in for you. Like, are you a fan of his other work? We covered The Hunting of Hill House on the show. We've also done Doctor Sleep by him. Um, and so we've touched on a few of his adaptations. He's doing more of them. He seems to be really be someone who does a lot of adaptations. How how did you feel about the rest of it, uh, his work? And then we can start talking about this one in particular. I'm, I'm a big fan of his work. For uh, I had a brief conversation with him several years ago. Uh, there was a an op- there was a chance that he was going to adapt The Fisherman, and so we had a phone a phone conversation with uh, had a phone conversation with him and his people, and it, it didn't work out ultimately. But he's a lovely guy. He's a very sweet guy, and and um, you know, in preparation for that meeting, I had crammed like all the films I hadn't seen. I was like, I have to watch all these movies, you know. But um, but they stood up to it, and and so I I think um, I think I probably didn't see what's the one that's that like Ouija Origin of Evil or whatever it is. Yeah, I think I did. Didn't see that one, but I'd seen everything else, and I thought his adaptation of like Doctor Sleep say was terrific. I I thought that that was be, because from my from a kind of meta perspective, it managed to blend novel and film of The Shining so well together, and and bring that all to to an end where um, you wind up in the same place. Ultimately, as King's as The Shining, right? Also, Doctor Sleep, so. Um, he's got this this wonderful cast of of actors that he just uses again and and again in all these different kinds of roles. We've seen that in the miniseries, but but some of those people like Henry Thomas, you know, he was in Doctor Sleep, he was there in uh, in Gerald's Game. So I uh, um, and also the the actress whose name just went right out of my head who plays Tamerlane in the Fall Fall of the House of Usher, she was what was it Bev the the sort of religious fanatic in in Midnight Mass. So that's the interesting thing too is the way he takes these people and you're like, I know who that is, but then they're in a completely different role in in some ways. But yeah, no, I, I'm a big fan of his his stuff, and I um, I was listening to an interview with him on I think. It was Neil McRoberts talking scared podcast and and he was expressing his personal frustration that the work he's done on Netflix is not available on DVD, you know, and I get it right. Netflix is going to make sure that you keep going to Netflix, but damn, I would love some DVD editions of those, of those shows with all the extras. And, and cause you know, they have to have recorded stuff, you know, oh, there yeah. have to be all sorts of interviews and, and I, uh, I would love to, I would love to see that. I hope at some point, I uh, hope at some point we will, but yeah, no, I, I, went into this um i went into watching this with with high high hopes and and uh happy to see what uh what mike was going to come up with next i can't wait to hear your thoughts on on uh its relation to the source in this case because it sounds like you're a big poe fan you're clearly very well read in in that space i could see people finding it controversial did you and how did you how did you react to the changes that were made here um i i think there were a, a few things that became clear to me once i'd watched the whole thing because I feel like, like especially with this, it's it's in essence, you know, the the framing narrative, right, is the conversation between Roderick Usher and and Dupin as as old men at the very end. So all of this we're getting is a kind of retrospective narration, uh, with a lot of it. You know, D- Dupin says at certain points, "How could you know what you're claiming to know?" And you know, Usher says, "They told me, right?" You know, but whether so, so I mean, 
we could take like there's there's another if you will meta kind of thing going on where because uh because usher has this this type of vascular dementia and he's hallucinating and whatever there were certain parts of the story that you could argue you know it, did this really happen or was this just usher's interpretation his invention to explain how his kid this kid or that kid wound up dying in, in this particular way but it it struck me I've noticed a few people already saying um, this isn't like Flanagan's other stuff. You know, he always shows the compassionate side of things. And uh, yeah, you, you, abs it, it, that is in some ways absolutely true. But I, I think that this is this is an angry show. And I don't mean that as condemnation. I, I mean, um, at the very, very end, not not to I mean, but I feel like you sort of have to get to the end. You know, when the when the Verna figure, this this supernatural figure she offers this deal to to Roderick and Madeline Usher. You can have it all and your kids will pay the price. And and that struck me that that's some that's some fuck you baby boomers. Oh, can I curse on this? Is that? Yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, all right, all right, all right. Sorry, sorry, no, you know, sorry, no, no. sorry mom. But <laughs> but it's it's definitely like like a shot across the bow of the baby boomers. You know, it's it's mm -hmm. you guys and and what has you know, you look at what Usher Pharmaceuticals has done. Um, of course, obviously, they're taking aim at the Sacklers, um, oxycodone, oxy all that kind of stuff. And, and you know, may I add just my own whatever soapbox, rightfully so. Um, but but beyond that, you know, the um, the plant the, to, to go back to the very first uh, uh I don't know, second episode where where uh, Perry meets his end, you know, that that structure is is a wonderful kind of a metaphor or a symbol for for the Usher family. They had this place. It's full of all this terrible stuff. And they were just going to let somebody else handle it. And then what happens? Boom, it gets it gets one of their own. So, yeah, I, I looked at it as. um that's the, the, this is and and to take it just a little bit further, you know, we see at one point uh, Mark Hamill, whom I absolutely loved as the Pym Reaper, um, oh, yeah. shows us these photographs that he's found of Verna with all these different less than positive figures in our culture today, <laughs> I might say. And she says, oh, yeah, one of my other guys, I told him he could kill someone in the middle of Fifth Avenue and no, <laughs> who could she have been talking about? Oh, I don't so know. It, <laughs> it, it, it struck me that that like Flanagan is not uh, he's not being subtle here. This is this is not the subtleties of human emotion. This is is. Um, yeah, you could say it's heavy handed, but but I, I think deliberately so, you know, there's when you if you know Poe at all. When you see the title, The Pit and the Pendulum, you know there's going to be a pendulum somewhere with a big blade <laughs> on the end of it. And so part of what you're doing is you're just waiting to see how that thing is is, is going to play in. So I was um, I was intrigued with with the use that he made of all the Poe, you know, sort of architecture and armature to, to tell his particular story. And I, I think, um, you know, there's there's a a sad commentary ultimately on, um, you know, maybe human corruptibility or something like that. Um, there there were these moments where. In episodes five and six, I want to say, where the the characters Vic and and then uh, Tammy have a moment with their significant other, where they could just say "I love you," where where they could just be they they, they could, but Vic draws back from saying "I love you" and is like basically, "How can I buy you?" and and so they're they're unable to um, 
be their better selves, I, I guess. And and that as much as anything contributes to their demise. I think the the series raises a kind of interesting question about heredity and uh and you know nature versus nurture, because so many of the because we, we know that the uh Froderick, as they call him, and uh and Tamerlane were basically raised by by Usher. The parents split up and then he got them because he just offered them stuff. And so he was sort of responsible in a way for corrupting them because he he exercised no restraint over over what they could get. And we certainly don't have any sense that Aunt Madeline was was any better. And then the the four children who uh who came forward after that, the the results of his liaisons, they all appeared, I, I mean uh, Prospero was the youngest, um, and and we see how he's been completely debauched. But so of all the rest. I mean, in their in their different kinds of ways, and and there's um, <laughs> there's something kind of depressing about that. I guess you know, like, <laughs> is it you know, is it just that that power and money corrupts? Just that's it, or or is it that Roderick in particular just he's taught them all the wrong lessons. He's, he's taught them, you know, you say, sir, yes, sir. Which of course was the lesson that the ironically named Griswold uh, taught him. Yeah. He, he, uh, he basically becomes him by the end. Right. We, we there's a lot of lines that we hear in flashbacks, uh, you know, his boss say to him, and we know that he says those, he says those later to his children. Um, yeah. I, I think you're touching on that. That's where the subtlety lies, I think is where, it, what ultimately is the evil here? Is it is it that the money is corrupting, the power is corrupting, or is it more the values that Roderick Usher failed to you know instill in his children? Yeah, could they have been saved? Could they have been? Could they have turned out good? Because you know none of them did. They're all awful people uh, at the end of it, and it's tough to feel a lot of sympathy for them as they go down one by one um, to varying degrees. You can argue maybe some of them are, are worse than others, but. Um, yeah, you're touching on a lot of stuff I definitely wanted to highlight, so I, I'll just kind of co-sign on a lot of it. I, last week, I mentioned how I immediately thought of the Trump family when we were talking about these rich people who never face any consequences. Yeah. Um, and then I was I was definitely smiling to myself when all of that basically gets confirmed <laughs> as we as we go through. And it's like, yeah, not just them, but also other billionaire families and people of power in our country in particular that that are leveraging capitalism in a way that feels extremely modern. It is like a modern takedown of American society and American evils um, from, yeah, from a no. younger generation looking at an older generation. So I, I totally agree with that. Yeah, absolutely. No, I I, I think um, I, I think so. I mean, it, it functions on on so many on so many different levels. I mean, there is this suggestion. It's interesting, you know, that that Verna says to um, it is Madeline. She says to you know, do you know what what Roderick would have been if you hadn't taken the deal? And and she's <laughs> oh, he would have been a poet, you know. Um, and she says to Freddie, you would have been a dentist. Um, and and it's, it's you know, Freddie is the only character she really seems to be pissed off at. Everybody else yeah. sort of bemused, oh, well, you know, this is what happens with you people. But but Freddie, she seems to take great, great personal offense to, to, to the way that he, to his cruelty. Um, his cruelty really seems to be what, what for her pushes him over the edge. And, and so that he gets the special, he gets the... He gets the pit in the pendulum tree. Yeah, I was wondering how we were going to get it. Continuing from what the first half set up, I feel like the second half really stuck the landing. I do love that touch that these each character was told what they or, or someone was told what they would have been. And all of that is to say, like, had they not taken the deal or if Roderick hadn't been their father or something like that. So so 
as John said, like getting into that nature versus nurture scenario, the way that they threaded the Raven and all the stuff with Lenore was really, that was the big reward at the end of all of this, because we see all these characters get what they deserve for the most part. And then we get Lenore, which is that tragic figure from Poe's story, tra tra you know, translated here as this character that's strong, like Annabelle Lee has the the stubbornness of a Roderick and the way that she is innocent and she doesn't deserve it, but even the innocence and, and you know, if you if you create the metaphor all the way across, like the boomers, yeah, they've created some people who like did bad shit and they deserve to they deserve their fate. But also these innocents who who had no say in the matter are affected and ultimately die. And, you know, there's a, there's so many other 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 things that come into play. So seeing Flanagan like tell that story all the way through and, and carry that metaphor through. I found to be really, you know, it's it's poignant. And while it it maybe it's a little on the nose, it's needed. I think like, you know, audiences, this is like a full takedown of the pharmaceutical industry, billionaire culture, uh, you know, all these different facets of what we've built up as this American empire that's like possibly doomed to fall. Um, so so seeing that kind of the fall of the House of Usher and the fall of America as a culture and a society uh, based on what we've built up this this, you know, shaky foundation, I, I thought it yeah. I thought it came to fruition really well nobody is spared too they even he even loops in you know tv and movies he's like yeah if we just took a year off we could solve all these problems but we can't and i was like oh all of a sudden i feel culpable um he draw, he's drawing us all in and saying you know we as a society as humans have chosen this to some extent um and then yeah there's the there's a you know we're getting ahead of ourselves into a final episode but madeline i think makes the the defense argument that you hear so often of like we're just a we're created by the system we're just providing a service and somebody else would do it we're just here because the consumers they're, they're so greedy and we want they were hungry and we gave them something that they wanted um so it, it provides a little bit of that but man is it a heavy metal takedown of that <laughs> in general um so so uh yeah, I was cheering it on ultimately, and and yeah, it's not subtle, but I don't care. I, I was having a good time. Yeah, with it. if Poe is this this more subdued side to these versions of the story, this this always set out to be, as we talked about last week, the very like heavy metal, blood on the walls, like throwing everything at the wall and being like uh, unabashedly like a horror romp. Yeah, no, I, I think and the thing is the in Poe's stories, you know, if you look at the Mask of the Red Death, which I think is definitely one of the framing narratives for the series as a, as a whole. Um, and also another story called Hop Frog. Poe loves these these kind of like elaborate parties that are just um, he's always a little iffy because it's the early, you know, it's not even 1850 yet. And he's got to be a little bit careful about what he tells you is going on. But he's like, oh, they out Herod Herod. Um, and, you know, that's there. there's yeah. When when Prospero says this going to be an orgy that's basically it you know it, it's <laughs> yeah. so i i mean I, I think that although poe's language often can seem a little bit reticent um he was fascinated by by these kinds of bacchanalian kinds of of uh of celebrations and also by these you know in the house of usher in the story in the house of usher you know roderick and madeline were basically the, there's the strong hint of incest there's there's the you know their family tree is a straight line kind of thing and um, so there's there's he's, he is kind of fascinated by the sort of habits of the rich and famous. It's it's just that he um, he views them in a lot of ways through a, a kind of a gothic lens. And I think this is actually one of the, the interesting changes or changes or, or you could say something Flanagan brings out maybe 
is is that this is very much a gothic story in the in the sense that gothics tend to be about the sins of the of the past making their way into the present the sins of the parents being visited on the children i mean that's absolutely what this what this show is about including as you said lenore most most kind of heartbreakingly at the end um i i'll be honest i mean i get why he had verna soften the blow for us by saying oh your mom's going to do all this great stuff part of me just wished though that she had just snapped her fingers and lenore was dead and we were all just like what um but i think he was a little afraid of throwing us too much out of the of the the narrative yeah and, and it does it does create that interesting um side by side because so much of this story to me is about this like distance people and wealth and power create between themselves and those who suffer because of their actions and there's a couple moments where we're confronted with or uh, where roderick is confronted with the reality of what he's done but she even says like it's impossible to know it's impossible to know the full reach of your evil and i think about that all the time for people like this and you're like do you know how many lives have people how many people have suffered because of you and how much death it's a statistic at a certain point and there's no way they can reckon with it um and this this show in a way is like an attempt to make them do that and in kind of a cathartic way for us as the audience because i would love for this to be true i'd love for some avenging raven figure to come in and and, and you know bring these people down um, and I think uh, Flanagan knows that that a, ma a majority of people watching the show are probably kind of cheering for that while they when they at least figure out that that's what's going on. Um, but I thought the Lenore stuff was an interesting counter to that of like a little bit of good and a little bit and it grows and it grows and it starts to spread. And before you know it, it actually is a, a good that is spreading throughout the world that touches an unknown number of people. It was at least providing a counterpoint of like what could be possible for people in power. If they can just choose that and i guess the point uh, quite often right, is they have the choice we we see them so often just failing to make that choice um Ma morella almost makes the choice i mean i guess in a sense she does make the choice and in, in that she doesn't go at like she goes to the orgy but she doesn't orge but on the other <laughs> hand um she doesn't get out in time either she doesn't yeah. she doesn't heed the warning so she she's still caught up in the in the uh, the acid rain yeah what a fucking scene that was by the way we touched on that uh last week that's going to be i think of all the scenes in this series that's going to stay with me the longest um absolutely horrifying and, yeah. and disturbing and uh i loved it <laughs> you know though funnily enough i mean the scene i i'm not that's definitely one of them but the lemon scene I do think that's oh, a yeah. small masterclass in acting and, and screenwriting. Life gives you lemons. No, 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 no. You don't make lemonade. Here's what you do. <laughs> um, my understanding is that Frank Langella was originally supposed to play the part of Roderick Usher and then about halfway through got bounced out for inappropriate behavior. Uh, but um, what is the actor's name? The guy who plays Roderick Usher is just fantastic. Um, I, I mean... Yeah. Flanagan always gets good performances out of his actors, even great performances out of his actors. And, and, you know, okay. The guy looks a little bit like he's made up to look just a little bit like Edgar Allan Poe with a little mustache and the, you know, Oh, and he's married to a woman who could be his child, like his grandchild. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. You know, but one of the things I like about Flanagan as a filmmaker is the way that he's willing to let the camera just sit on an actor as they talk, as they give a speech or, or whatever. The tricky thing about that is the actor has to be able to pull it off. The actor has to be good for it. And if they're not, it's just going to be horrible to watch. 
but man, he's able to, he's, he's able just time and time again to, to pick actors who can, who can deliver on that. To have to pivot to Bruce Greenwood and to get such a great performance out of him. Yeah. Like, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, all these monologues that he has. Um, Carla Gugino, uh, throughout has yeah, excellent yeah, 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 monologues yeah, as well. Yeah. Mark Hamill has some, some great moments of yeah. where you just get to live with him. His, his, those performances, those, I think those are the three that really stand out to me like all things considered at this point. Although, um, Madeline, you know, she had remarkable presence uh she had just um is it madeline stowe who plays oh that's mary mcdonald mary mcdonald god all right sorry sorry mary um but yes she has just her stage presence is her screen presence is just she's just magnetic you know there's there's every time she's on the screen she just commands the screen's attention is that modern day madeline yeah. yeah yeah modern yeah. modern day madeline i, I yeah, actually yeah. really liked uh the flashback madeline too like 1980 yeah, yeah. Era madeline i thought she was scary and 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 she had a lot of great moments honestly too of, of great acting so moving in here i i did want to give john the opportunity um we've kind of talked about our history with poe and all of that but i wanted to ask as we move into these poe adaptations did you have a favorite story or two that stand out to you that you were excited to see adapted in this series you know, it's funny, The Pit and the Pendulum, when I was a kid, like in grade school, we were all obsessed with that story because the, the there was something about just the, the dynamic of the story. Guy strapped to this slab and the pendulum's coming down. And, you know, uh, for whatever reason, as as uh, as like, I don't know, you know, fourth and fifth graders. So like nine, 10 years old, we were just like beside ourselves with with uh, with that story. And I don't know if we had. I don't know if any of us had seen, say, the Corman, the Corman film or anything like that. I think it was just someone's older brother or parent or something must have told them about it. So so I was really curious to see what they were going to do. And throughout the episode, I kept thinking, is it just metaphorical? You know, and then we yeah. get to the end and yeah. I was like, there it is. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, there were other things where, um, you know, I, I would recognize, OK, um, this is not, I mean, I was really curious, how are they going to do the Raven? How are they going to handle the Raven? Because they, the, the poem is, um, you know, this, as I said, this great, great heartbreaking poem about death being it, that just, that's it. You die and there is never more. You're never going to see Lenore again. She is lost to you, uh, as is everybody who's, who's gone. It's, it's just, uh, um, uh, in some ways, a terrifying and uh, kind of poem. So I was curious to see how they were going to sort of try to thread the eye of of that needle, because obviously she's one of these beings from Ultima Thule that has come topside. I really, I, I'll be honest, it, it wasn't within the scope of the series. I would love to have seen some kind of flashbacks to what old uh, Arthur Gordon Pym was up to when he was uh, circumnavigating the globe, because. Uh, um, yeah, the, I'm sure that's... I thought we were uh, going to get that. I, I was a little bit disappointed, too. I mean, I I see why they didn't. It probably got cut for time, but I yeah, was... Yeah, yeah I, was, I was hoping to see a little glimpse of that. Well, he was so complicit in everything that it felt like we should have had an episode with his story. And, and I get it. Again, it's the focus is on the family, but he's the family fixer. He's the guy who who greases the wheels. He's always there. So it, it felt like there should have been something... Like, like he... He should have gotten his moment too. Fascinatingly, though, he's the only guy who doesn't, or he's the guy who doesn't take the deal. Yeah. And and there's there's a sort of fascinating kind of integrity 
integrity or something or or canniness about that. No, no, no. I've just seen where the deal got my friends. Uh, thanks, but I'll go to jail. I also thought it was there was like it's not a great uh, comparison, but like the sort of honor among thieves thing between him and and uh, Verna, where she like respects his decision. She's like, of course, yeah. you wouldn't take the deal. And he's like, yeah, like you said, very savvy and, and new. Uh, that it wouldn't have been worth it in any way like whatever the consequence wouldn't have been worth the the, the boon yeah, but yeah, um yeah. So, something else that it just in speaking about things that were left out of the series that um this this show is meant to be sort of like pose like like all of his work as a whole um and i felt like some of the, the in learning that he is sort of the the grandfather of like the detective modern detective story um, I felt like that was never made good on within the series. Like it, we didn't get, we did have a detective working, but we didn't get the sort of Sherlock-esque um, Poirot sort of figure solving some sort of mystery in the way that I expected that we might. Um, and yeah, and the Arthur Pym story is, is like a globetrotting adventure almost. Uh, and, and that was sort of left out. So it's like, while this, this does, I think, capture a lot of Poe's work and, and like his oeuvre, I guess, um, it it does miss like little corners here and there. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. You know, there's there's the moment when um when the young Dupin says to to Roderick and Annabelle, he he does the little I've made all these observations about you guys, and from these observations I can intuit. Yeah, you were up all night with the baby. There's two cups of coffee. That means you were both up, and and so on. And that that is the kind of stuff that Dupin and then you know his his literary child as it were sherlock holmes would specialize in but dupin becomes he's, he's played as this kind of ironic figure you know that, that he gets all the little details um he can even you know get the signature thing right and he he think he sees the importance of the little details to build his case but he completely misses the fact that he's being played which uh yeah which is which is heartbreaking for him so he's it's it's like that Whatever faith Poe might have had in in or, or how would I put this? The faith that those stories express in the ability of the detective to get to the bottom of things, the series just completely undercuts. It, it, at the end, they have to tell you themselves. Roderick Usher has to say, "Come meet me at this address, and I'll tell you what you want to know." All right. So moving into the series, episode five is called "The Telltale Heart." Roderick, Madeline, and Annabelle Lee join forces with Dupin to uncover Fortunato's hidden files. The surviving Usher children devolve into jealousy over their father's favoritism. Frederick has the hospital discharge Morella into his care. Victorine admits that she forged Ali's signature to hurry Verna's surgery. Dupin admits he lied about the informant's existence to pit the family against each other. After an argument, Tamerlan and Bill break up. Roderick meets Victorine for the heart mesh, but she is distracted by a ticking noise. Her memory then comes back after Ali said she was going to reveal the corruption behind the Usher family and the heart mesh trial. Victorine threw a bookend at her head, killing her. Desperate, she used the heart mesh on a dead Ali and was driven to madness by the mesh's chirping. Upon realizing this, Victorine commits suicide in front of her father. What a cool episode. So I mentioned this last week. I think the Telltale Heart was maybe outside of the Raven, the one that I latched onto the most as a, as a young reader, absolutely loved the idea of this mad narrator trying to convince us how what he did was not mad. And look, listen to how calmly I planned this. And like, you know, I love that voice and I thought it was so striking. But then at the same time, he's being driven mad by hearing this, this beating of this heart. And so I was really curious when I got to the Telltale Heart episode, like how are they, how is he going to translate this to this modern retelling? 
Um, I thought this was a pretty cool version of it, right? With the with the synthetic beating um, going on, you know, the chirping sound throughout that's haunting uh, Victorine. Yeah, I, I thought this was a pretty cool one. It's interesting because it changes a lot. So I, I can see people maybe being a little frustrated with just how much we got away. There's no vulture eye, you know, reference. There's a, there's a lot that gets left out from this story, but um, it's like a riff on it. I, I liked it. It was the sound of the heart was was particularly squishy. You know, it, it. I think you could have because I think at this point, right, we've all seen any number of shows where that you know we hear the beating of the heart. You know, and I don't even mean just Poe adaptations, but I mean that's become a sort of dramatic convention. And so I think um, to turn it uh, to the the methodical sound of the of the little machine is is a, a little stroke. You know, it's, it it's, it it reframes it for us in a way. There's a way in which it, it becomes this kind of trope for what they're doing everything they're involved in is trying to do whether it's to it's to remove pain right with with ligodone you know this this obviously like oxycodone thing um so it's it's trying to remove pain to an extent that like is not really practical um because of the terrible side effects um or the ai thing we're going to uh we're going to replace you with a bot which but it's like you it's like immortality um and now in this case we're going to keep your heart just sort of beating you know it's interesting is there is no old man but in in poe's story the narrator says you know i i didn't want his gold <laughs> of course the moment he says that we're, we're like oh he had gold did he and and this is there's a lot 200 million dollars i think it is right is at stake here and so there's there's a lot obviously going on for for uh for Vic psychologically and and whatever but you know as with that narrator there is the suggestion that yeah money has a money has a part to has a part to play here I think what what is harder to say here is in in Poe's story there's the sense right that the man has gone the narrator has gone mad and is hearing either his own heartbeat or is hallucinating that he's hearing the heartbeat here it seems that verna is the one who's making that who's making that heartbeat sound the very last scene that verna places the artificial the little heart pocket on top of uh, on top of vic's uh, headstone right so it seems that that verna has always had some kind of connection with that i mean at the end when roderick hears it that's because it's on you know verna's partner's partner's you know dead heart but even the the end with with vic committing suicide i mean in in a sense, the the narr I think the narrator at the end of the Telltale Heart basically says, "Yeah, they're getting ready to hang me." I think, I could be wrong about that. But in confessing and tearing up the floorboards and saying, "You yeah. know, there he is," right? I mean, that's an act of self destruction. And and Vic does something similar in in front of her father. You know, she destroys herself. Yeah, I like that you reframed it that way because I I didn't when I when I watched the episode initially, I was like, "Wow, you know, there's no." moment of admitting guilt really i mean a suicide is a, is a form of that right it's saying of like that's the guilt persona taken to the point that she can no longer handle it but the something the telltale heart when i read it that the moment of going so insane that you you show the evidence and and you like present it to the to the police there um it was such a departure that i was like man this is a very different episode and i felt like it it suffered a little a little bit not that i felt like it was a bad episode but it suffered from I think doing a lot of heavy lifting, setting up the rest of the stories. Every single episode, I think, sets out to in some way set up the other stories. They're simultaneously doing like all of these stories and then each episode focuses in on one. This one felt like it did so much heavy lifting for episodes uh, six and seven that 
it was like the very end of the episode and maybe a few chunks throughout really featured the telltale heart as a story but um getting to the part where ally she throws the bookend at ally and just how gruesome and brutal that is it's it's um one of those things where i i wonder if you hadn't read Poe. I think this show, this show rewards people who've read Poe and are who are familiar, which is most audiences. But if you hadn't, are you really getting like sort of the the morality of the Telltale Heart from this? I don't I don't think that you're getting all of it, but um, it's a fun interpretation for those who have read it. Yeah, the thing about the, th- the thing that's interesting is is Poe wrote a story uh, called "The Imp of the Perverse," almost like the first I don't know two thirds of the story is an essay, uh, a kind of a philosophical essay say about that part of ourselves that just makes us do stupid stuff uh, and stuff against our own self-interest and in in his in in this story uh spoiler alert people for a story that's like you know whatever almost 200 years old (laughs) um a guy commits the perfect murder and uh he just he gets away with it there's no there's no one is going to is is ever going to find out and at the end of the story he runs outside and starts shouting i did it i I killed this guy that there's just something about us that, that kind of turns in on us. And, and for him, that's that, you know, sort of imp of the perverse, this, this kind of urge to self-destruction or or self-sabotage that, that we all have. And, and you could certainly see that, especially actually, especially in, in Vic and Tammy's cases, I think you could, you could make that, uh, you could maybe make that case more, more than with any of the others, possibly. Um, I'd have to think a little bit, a little bit more yeah. about that. But, but it feels like it. Vic is one who seems to feel a little bit of guilt, so you get a little bit of that. Like you, you could. It's like she almost accidentally killed Allie. Like you could say, you know, she threw a heavy object at her. Something bad was bound to happen, but it didn't seem like she intended to kill her. And then the guilt over what she's done. You know, she mutilated the body and tried to, you know, hook this thing up to the heart. But was that some sort of like madness of trying to save the life? Oh, um, I think so. I, I think them, so. Yeah, bring yeah. her back. Yeah. And and then she's she's like clearly compartmentalized it and kind of shut it out and trying to go on. And then but then she keeps hearing and it keeps drawing her back. So in some ways, I think he is touching on that guilt. And I think that's what ultimately makes like I love that about Poe's stories, and I, I I like believing that that's the case, and that in the world the, that bad people will be driven mad by their own guilt, um, and and Poe returns to that so often. Even the Black Cat is a story that's very similarly structured, um, where where it's just like I can't I can't just shut up. I have to reveal the fact that I've done, committed a crime. But I do think that also kind of puts it into a fantasy territory for me, whereas I, I have my doubts about the real world and whether or not people who do some of this heinous shit are actually capable of feeling guilt and actually capable of being haunted by the, their choices or if they just sleep like babies because they are sociopaths. I don't know. <laughs> well, I think you're right that Vic seems of, of possibly of all of them, the one with, with something like a conscience. Yeah. Um, the others are, are seem just concerned um, largely. Uh, I mean, about not getting caught, um oh i i killed my boyfriend's cat you know, it's, you know in which i don't remember doing but i killed yeah. i killed the cat you know and and i have to hide i have to hide the evidence of that and i'll i'll spend whatever it takes right um and and yeah vic is is um yeah vic wants to succeed she's she's impatient to put it mildly and of course it's it's her test chimp that uh fills out or or, or brings us the murders in the room morgue you know i, I mean although in 
I think in poster it's an orangutan, but orangutan chimpanzee. I'm an American. Do I even know the difference between these things? Yeah. In this episode, there, there's this great moment when uh, Augie and Pim are together, and um, there's a reference to Ingmar Bergman, in the, yeah, yeah. and uh, with the chessboard near the beach. Oh, I, I believe that uh, Augie says that all we need is a chessboard and a beach or something like that to Pim, like referencing Seven Seal. I love that Flanagan is having fun here with with film obviously and and that's clearly a film that he loves but referencing death and then the embodiment of death that's in seventh seal and then drawing that parallel over here to this adaptation and what we get in verna who is the raven or an embodiment of death is also another cool connection that i just i had to mention before we move to yeah, yeah. And, and well and, and even pim himself the pim reaper right i, I mean yeah. he is this also this sort of minor death figure who keeps running around you know Bring me her eyes. Oh, okay, no problem. We also get the first mention of something that I'm I'm I can open the the floor now to you too. So I'm curious to know your thoughts on it. Where in a flashback, I believe it was Verna calls Madeline Cleopatra. Um, says, "Oh, my Cleopatra," and then later on, she there's a the whole thing where she's like, "You don't know who I am." She like breaks her neck. Um, which seemed almost superhuman to me. I don't know if it was intended to be or not, but it posed the question for me, like, is Madeline more than she seems to be? Is she some sort of otherworldly figure? I thought it was, like, kind of ambiguous. You could read it that way. But I'm, I'm wondering if either you read it that way or, or do you think she's just Roderick's sister, human, same as Roderick? Or, or did you see something more with her? I, I just took her for what she was as a human and, and the sister. But I like where you're going because ultimately where Roderick says that she's a goddess and treats her to a goddess's funeral or to a, you know, I guess a pharaoh's funeral or whoever it was. Yeah. Um, that's kind of cool. That kind of aligns with some of the stuff you're talking about there. Yeah, I, I thought that she was um, a human, but a terrifying human. It, it's actually it's very. For, for all the people break necks in movies and stuff, all it's actually very hard to do, which is a relief <laughs> to me. Um, it's, it's very yeah. hard to snap someone's neck like that. But if anybody could, Madeline Usher could. Um, and I, I thought that that, and what's interesting is that having done that, she then apologizes. Mm-hmm. You know, she, she, she's like, like Pim in his, in his dealings with Verna, you know, she makes her move and Verna says, well, yeah, I guess you had to try. And, and then Madeline says, okay, that didn't work. I apologize. Let's, you know, so, so it's all, it's, it's this sort of fascinating uh, uh, combination, I guess, of savagery and, and manners. Um, and, and as if one just rides right on top of the other. I also took that to be Madeline pivoting right away and sort of scheming like, oh, I apologize. Hopefully we can get back on better terms and, and make a deal yeah. here or something like that. Yeah, 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 I think so. Self-preservation kicks in because I, I, I kind of took it that way, too, is that it's like um, I am now realizing I am being faced with something supernatural, something beyond humans. This is kind of the reality of setting in for these characters in this moment. And all of a sudden they don't have the power anymore. And as soon as they don't have the power anymore, oh, I'm sorry I mistreated you. You know, let's let's talk right. like you know reasonably. <laughs> yeah, it's after they both tried to kill her, and and then yeah. it doesn't work, and that's when they realize, oh, okay. And then yeah, I, can't, they... I can't deal with this like I deal with all the other problems I deal with. <laughs> yeah, that that whereas Roderick keeps denying, right? And the meetings keep saying this is all bullshit. This is you guys are falling for this. They accept it as soon as they're faced with it, they just accept it as it's what we need to accept to, to continue on through the, the next part of the, you know, the next 10 minutes or whatever it is. I do want to add though, that I called it with Dupin 
after about episode two or three, I thought, you know what? I bet there's, there isn't an informant. I bet he's just setting them all against each other. And when he said there isn't an informant, I was like, yeah. Uh. <laughs> I think James, you said that in our last episode, if I remember correctly. I think I at least floated the question. I wasn't confident, yeah. but yeah. Yeah. Uh, right on, I, James. Before we leave this, <laughs> before we leave this episode behind, I did want to point out one, one moment I thought was really cool. And it was the uh, Roderick is sort of, fantasizing about jumping out of the window and falling to his death. He doesn't end up doing it. And he gets called, you know, weak by Verna. And she says, I wish you had done it. But the moment where he turns around and then the skyline starts, I guess, rising because it looks like he's falling and we yeah, see yeah, the wind yeah. blowing on. I just thought this was a cool, I mean, it's probably on a virtual stage, James, you'd know better than I, than I would, but I noticed um, quite a bit of that actually being used. Yeah. I thought the effect looked really cool. Um, and, and ultimately was something I hadn't seen before, which I'm always on the, you know, on the lookout for stuff like that. Well, and, and it, it, it sets up or, or it looks forward, right. To the, the reign of bodies at yeah. the, at the end, right. That there's, there's a sort of visual continuity. And that absolutely the, the, anything that when they're looking out of those sky, those, uh, skyscrapers, those, that was a virtual stage, especially the bodies falling, I noticed, but it's still such a strong filmmaking tool that why wouldn't you use it in that right. scenario? I, I'm glad it's virtual because of all those extras, come on, man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, it's a great gig. It's a Mike Flanagan thing you want in or don't you sure what do i have to do <laughs> worth it worth it right yeah. first you got to get naked then you're going to go to the top of this very tall building mark hamill is going to push you off <laughs> luke skywalker of course so uh moving into episode six here gold bug in the present tamerlan deals with hallucinations from insomnia and her breakup with bill as she prepares to launch her wellness package gold bug madeline tries to convince roderick that verna is a threat after his children's mounting death count trying to remind him of their deal with her back in 1980 though roderick is in denial she also pushes her scientists to develop an ai for consciousness mapping pym uncovers verna's links to prominent families impossibly dating back hundreds of years Morella begins speaking, leading Frederick to drug her back into silence, still believing she had been unfaithful. Lenore grows concerned when her father does not bring the specialists he'd promised for her mother. At Goldbug's launch, Tamerlan is rattled by hallucinations of Verna and a sex tape of her, Bill, and an escort. She accidentally injures Juno and Madeline spots Verna, who turns to dust before her eyes. At home, Verna taunts Tamerlan through mirrors, which she smashes until the shards of glass impale and kill her. We read the stories along with this as we were going. I had never read Goldbug before. This was my first time reading this story. Um, it, it was probably my least favorite Poe story I think I've read. Uh, maybe I'm missing something, but I, I found it pretty dull throughout. Um, it features a lot of this cryptography stuff, which I read later that he, I guess, was famous for doing some of these kinds of stories. They were very popular at the time, apparently. He got paid the most for this story of any one sale he made in his lifetime. He made $100 for it. Um, that was his biggest single sale. I thought that was an interesting note, um, considering I didn't like it very much. <laughs> um, it also had a, a, a figure, uh, a, you know, a, a character who was really just a offensive, racist stereotype. Um, I think even for the time, but, you know, definitely now through the lens of time, for sure. And this may be the record for the, the, the most racist story that we've read on the podcast. Like it, I, That's bold. We've read some bad ones. We've read some bad ones, but that one, it was everything about the character. I was like, oh, my God, this is very off-putting. What a strange one to choose here, because ultimately it doesn't really have a ton to do with the story we see. Other than, like, sort of the obsession with treasure 
that and, and, the, and you know the acquiring of wealth and in, in sort of a, a, a larger way unless i'm missing something I, i'm curious to know what, what did you think john what do you think of goldbug the story and, and how it relates to this episode i i agree with you guys that the um it, it was as if they couldn't resist goldbug they couldn't resist that title but the 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 connection to the to the post story is is a little bit hard to see you know there's as a box you said, at one point that you open up and there's treasure in it yeah i mean that that was all i could figure was was that the the there's the box and that the the box is a treasure just for you the the thing is that you know it's sort of individually tailored treasure the thing is as i recall in Poe's story it's like captain kid's treasure you know so there's a little bit you know oh, we finally found it you know um but it's uh and there's the the sort of the ciphers but the ciphers don't really I mean, I was thinking to the ciphers, you know, could you argue that there, I mean, Verna is is a cipher for Raven, so I guess that's there. But there's never a moment where any of the characters is like, wait a minute. <laughs> <You know, there's, laughs> um, so it seemed to me, you know, Tamerlane is is named after, um, I think it's the earliest of, of Poe's like sort of poetic successes, this this poem called Tamerlane. And, and he writes... He writes two versions of it. He writes a version, I think, when he's like 17, which is like 400 lines ballpark uh, uh, long. And then a few years later, he publishes a, a, a version that's not quite half as long, but it's it's he's cut a lot, a lot out of it. And he takes this this um, uh, middle, uh, like sort of Eurasian conqueror uh, named Tamerlane the Great, who is sort of dropped out of our, uh, I think, of Western culture in a, in a lot of ways. He made an appearance in um, a series of Russian movies a few, well, more than a few years ago, the Night Watch films, Night Watch, Day Watch. And, and Tamerlane actually has a, a, this historical bit involving him in, in, uh, in one of those. But, but by and large, he's not a figure that is that, I think, familiar to us. And in, in Poe's story, in, in, in the narrative, I guess you would say, of, of Poe's poem, Tamerlane basically chooses power and wealth over love. And that seems to be very much what 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 Tammy, what Tamerlane has has done. She's chosen her her built <laughs> program, the, the gold bug box, all that, over this guy who actually really seems to care for her. Uh, you know, he, he really, he's, he's like... Uh, Man, I really don't want to have sex with all these other women. <laughs> I just want to. I just want to be with you. Um, and and you know, there's there's like another layer of irony under that. You know, in in that she clearly chooses. She's clearly obsessed with the gold bug launch and and what have you. But you know, she's wearing this vivid green dress uh, to to during that second part of the or, or that part of the show, and. You know, I thought, duh, you know, the, the, the jealousy, the green eyed monster, you know, that the mocks the meat it feeds on. So I, I thought, OK, so she is she's intensely jealous of uh, but she can't she can't admit that, you know, she's I mean, jealousy is a loss of control, isn't it? And and her thing seems to be about just just utter control over her everything in her environment um, to, down to, to she will control it, it, like she's controlling the box that you're going to get that has all these little things in it just for you. And, um, and so, yeah, the, the destruction of the mirrors, I, I mean, talk about a, a kind of an image for, for self-destruction um, that, uh, and, and um, yeah, it's not, it's, it's not a, 
not a pretty way to die. I mean, not that any of them are. It's not maybe it's not as bad. And maybe he takes a backseat to uh, Prospero, but yeah. <laughs> it's still it's still pretty bad. Yeah, I love that you you uh, signaled that the green dress because the green dress and especially that final scene where she is smashing the mirrors, the green neon coming from the street evoked that Hitchcock vertigo look. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then smashing of the mirrors, and I because we saw a, a clip of her before her death has actually been shown and her face was all cut up and her neck seemed to be doing something. And I was like, what, what possibly can happen here? I thought the same thing. Yeah. I, I was like, what is going to, what's, what's going to happen? I also thought, Oh my God, that's a lot of bad luck. Come right. on. Yeah. Right. How many years is that? Let's... Right. Exactly. That final scene being about smashing mirrors and then using that green motif. Um, I, I thought was really, it was really evoking a different story here and that's i think what luke was getting to is that this this story is completely unlike the the original uh poe story so i just wonder like why call it why not just call it tamerlane if it was if that was the yeah i, I think tamerlane would have been uh, for me that would have been better yeah and i don't know if it was just something they just the Tamerlane thing was something they just wanted to weave in or, or whatever i mean you could argue that it's ironic in the same way that dupin is an ironic figure that the, 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 the gold bug the sort of mystery plot is is treated ironically in that she completely misses the yeah. the mystery you know the mystery of love you know she she completely misses that to focus on her her product launch and then knocks out her poor step mother i mean it, uh, that poor woman she was a great she was a, like like sort of like for sort of June, very dry yeah. comic relief at, at, at points yeah she provided a, yeah a good a good comic relief um so i i like this show overall i i've talked about i've been singing its praises throughout um i will admit this was the episode where i felt like it was starting to fall into a bit of a repetitive cycle to where this felt very familiar we're going to see the death of one of the children. We're going to slowly progress some of the other storylines. Um, I will admit there's some a couple of scenes that really stood out, like when when we start learning about Verna and we're seeing all these different figures um, and she's in all these photos. I mostly like that. Like it, it again, it's very heavy handed. I almost didn't need it. Like I could I could have kind of interpreted that that's the case and that she works with all these people, but to see her literally in a picture with Mitch McConnell <laughs> and right. you know what I mean? And like Tucker it, was, Carlson. it was pretty yeah, funny. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was like, okay, we're going really make sure nobody misses the message here. Right. Um, right. Uh, it, but ultimately like it was still a good episode, but yeah, this is where I was like, all right, we're setting up the penultimate episode. And I hope that Flanagan will take this and start to twist it more and start to um, sort of break it apart and do something more interesting with it as we go forward. And I think he did do that. Um, but here, I, this was one of my least favorite episodes in the series, which I thought was ironic, considering it was definitely my least favorite stories that we read. Um, but yeah, still still good. Still good. Yeah, no, the funny thing is, I, I actually thought the actress's portrayal really, for me, really anchored it and, and really made it just kind of kind of hit home. You know, it's it's interesting that that those because the black cat is episode four, right? Um, yes. Because because and, and there you have Leo having these gaps in his memory and gaps in time. Time. And then you get the same thing with Vic in the Telltale Heart, and now you get the same thing with uh, with Tammy in, in this. And and in in her case, it's because of sleep deprivation. And in Leo's case, too many drugs. Um, and in Vic's case, it's murder. Um, but but in, in there's there's this return, I guess, to to I think one of Poe's central fascinations, which is with sort of altered states of consciousness, and and with uh, and this is I, I think something that he that, that comes very much 
out of romantic British romanticism. You know, he's he's getting this. I mean, he's a big fan of Byron and to a certain extent Coleridge, and, and I think he's getting this in part from their stuff as well. But but what Flanagan does is is to take it. It's it's blanks. You know, it's it's just you. What did I do? I don't know what I did. Um, there's there's something you know, and and in, I mean the wall in a sense behind which behind which Griswold is is chained. You know, that's a kind of emblem for that, right? There's this blank surface, and there's something behind that. And whatever it is, is not good. Yeah. One other thing I wanted to say with the the whole green room thing was it, it's also, you know, we talk about the, the mask of the red death and how there's all those colored rooms. And I'm just realizing that like, that's, that's a Poe, I feel like almost signature. That's almost like a, something yeah. that you can look to many of his stories is like well, colors well, evoking emotions. We you mentioned know. that in the, uh, the haunting of Hill house also that that might've been an inspiration that Shirley Jackson was drawing on for having the different rooms of the house be these different primary colors. Um, that goes right back to the Mask of the Red Death, where they travel through all these different rooms. And I definitely noticed that a lot of these different scenes have like a primary color largely associated with it. Um, yeah. This being the green one this episode. But I think, uh, you know, you could I think the pit in the pendulum scene was very blue. Like There's certain moments that have a lot of uh, certain color to them. So episode seven is called the pit in the pendulum. Madeline tries to convince Pym to elect her as CEO after Roderick is pushed out due to his illness. She wishes to pivot Fortunato to a tech company focusing on artificial immortality. Frederick, now hooked on Leo's cocaine, continues to torture a helpless Morella. In 1979, Roderick betrays Tupon at the court hearing to take down Fortunato, saving the company and earning its gratitude. Shocked and disappointed, his wife Annabelle Lee leaves him. In the present, Roderick refuses Juno's request to get off Ligadone, admitting he only married her because he was fascinated by her body's affinity for the drug. She leaves him too. Frederick enters the building where Perry died prior to it being bulldozed. He snorts cocaine and collapses. Werner reveals that she pushed him to add Morella's paralytics to the cocaine. As the demolition begins, she explains she would have used an easier method of death, but chose this because of his decision to torture Morella. The collapsing infrastructure forms a pendulum that bisects Frederick. He can see and feel it happening. Lenore rescues her mother and calls the police. Madeline thinks she can save herself if Roderick dies and convinces him to overdose on Ligadone. Verna, however, does not allow him to die just yet. I had read The Pit the Pendulum uh, many years ago, but I wanted to return to it, so I read it right before watching this episode. This time reading it, it made me think about all of the, like an entire genre of film we have now. People call it the torture porn, something sure. like Saw, something like a Hostel, right? There's all these different movies where it's like some elaborate device, you're trapped in it. There's the, an inherent, like, will they be able to escape? Will they be able to escape their fate? What kind of horrors are going to be, you know, enacted upon them? And I was like, did Poe kind of invent this story too? Because that's kind of what it felt like reading it, honestly. It was a very elaborate torture mechanism. He's in, like, the Inquisition has, like, captured him, is what is, if I remember correctly. And he gets out of one thing only to be in another situation where he's now going to get pushed into the pit and, like, you know, there's, there's, the walls are closing in and it's very elaborate. Um, and I don't know. What do you think? Is this an early case of that kind of story? I, I think so. I'm asking myself, Wilkie Collins has a um, man. He's got some kind of story that's that's. But see, Collins was after Poe and read Poe. Um, and I what is the name of the Collins story? It's about a bed, I think. A haunted bed. Anyway, I, I think, yeah, Poe may be at the very beginning of, of this kind of uh, at least prose version of this. Uh, of this story I, I mean you go back to go back to greek mythology and go back to someone like theseus 
um, in the same way that, that there were the labors of Hercules, there were the labors of Theseus. And there's not as many and they're not completely really as exciting. But one of the things that he does is he he kind of cleans up by the road into, I think it's Athens. There are all these different robbers. Um, and some of them are just kind of boring robbers. But then there were others. There's one guy who has the bed and, and he's like, oh, sleep in my bed for the night. And if you're too big, he he shortens you. And if you're too short, he lengthens you. And there's another guy who's like, come over here. And he stakes you out and he ties you to your your hands to one sapling that he's bent over and your feet to another sapling that he's bent over. And then he cuts the cuts the strings and they fly apart and they they tear you apart. So I mean, there are there are stories that or, or elements in stories, right, like this. But but the pit and the pendulum strikes me as as the first I can think of, um, or one of the first I can think of anyway. Um, no, it is really the first I can think of that just foregrounds that that's the point of the, of the story is like the sort of horrors to a certain extent, the horrors of the inquisition, you know, there's a, an argument about, about Gothic forms that they are in a sense, Protestant forms that arise in response to Catholicism, a sort of threat of, of Catholicism. And I think that that, I sometimes think that that, that interpretation is overstated, but I do think in this case it's it's a, a reasonable argument to make that these are the horrors of the Inquisition that that they're not just going to kill you they're going to let the the pendulum just you know <laughs> they're going to like sort of break you psychologically and then even after you escape they they cheat you know like like yeah. it's it's not like you know Isn't there's not like or something too is going to happen in that story yeah the walls yeah. the walls are hot as I as yeah. I yeah so so they're just. They're, oh, you thought you'd escaped that, Batman? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know? So there is the um, um, it's sort of it's a kind of a horror thing, um, and and it's also um, I, I think a sort of um, oblique uh, indictment of of that kind of religiosity. I have two things. The first is anytime the Spanish Inquisition is mentioned, I I always think of Monty Python. Uh, exactly. How, how can you not? <laughs> exactly. No one was expecting it. And yet yeah. here it is. Right. Yeah. Uh, and the other is uh, like you, John, this was the this was the post story. In addition to the Raven, when I read this story as a, as a, I think I was probably like 12 or 13, I was introduced to like what classic, even classic literature uh, like Poe, what it could contain as in, in substance. Like I was I was blown away. I was like, I can't believe that this is such a graphic story. It's such a, it's such a scary story. It's got like this, this twist ending at the very last second where it is, it is happier, but you don't, the whole time you assume that he's, he's going to either die to the pendulum or die to the pit. And for whatever reason that really stuck with me, I thought often about Poe and the pit and the pendulum. And like, like Luke said, this, this fascination that we have and, and with Poe possibly being one of the early people to write this, he's so on the cutting edge of like the taboo, and this this is that it's like people are fascinated with the grotesque people are fascinated with um like what human beings will do to one another and how that evil can at times be be worse than any other horror entity cosmic entity um and and i i just remember this story being a big moment for me in reading that's those these kinds of stories all right i just have to say the cutting edge really yeah right <laughs> i had well, to stop myself earlier from saying that that your book the fisherman really hooked me at the very beginning i'm sure it's yeah, the really, really reeled me in. Yeah, yeah. it uh no i i think you're 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 right that um nobody almost nobody likes rats 
Um, we had pet rats once upon a time. They were lovely. But most people, when I tell them that, are utterly horrified. And so not only is the guy, not only is there the 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 pen, you know, the the the, the pendulums, the blade swinging down, but there's also the rats, which are of course going to be his saviors and all this kind of stuff. But um, so yeah, it, it definitely pushes buttons. It's it's definitely um, you know, I, I think Poe um looking for what Stephen King calls, you know, psychic pressure points. Oh, how do you feel about a big blade swinging over you? Oh, that bothers you. Would rats make it worse? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and, and they do a lot of that kind of foreshadowing in the episode, too. Uh, we have the cattail going back and forth. We hear that uh, uh, Freddie is the swing vote, I thought was uh, interesting. Oh, yeah, oh yeah, you're yeah, the nice, swing nice. vote. Nice. Yeah, oh, yeah, the yeah. board swinging, is it? Um, I thought he kept coming back to that image, uh, you know, foreshadowing what what, what his fate was going to be. Although I will admit, I kept expecting it to be something where he was going to be doing it to his wife and then he was going to get caught in it somehow um, because, you know, they were setting up this like he was torturing her essentially. And just like I was like, oh, man, he really turned too. and I think they they recognize that there was a little bit of like he's kind of a pitiful character early on he's got a man bun for god's sake i mean right there (laughs) poor henry thomas that that is devotion to your craft if you're like you know what i'll wear the man bun okay let's do it (laughs) i live in the land of the man buns i can't i can't cast any shade but um, okay all right (laughs) um no but it's not a particularly flattering one i will grant that um yeah it it is um i thought this was a really cool episode honestly this this kind of brought it back for me i i liked that both dupin and um roderick call out the whole script of the thing they're like well this is the part where you do this and and dupin's like i'm not going to do what you want me to do this is where i walk back to the seat and and right. and roderick's like i'm not really in control of this whole thing man like I, you know i don't know what to tell you and i felt like it got a little bit meta this is where it, it felt a little bit postmodern to me and i yeah. like it when it when it when it gets into that territory too because it it freshened up what had become a familiar pattern we were getting with every episode before this i mean tammy is is not exactly likable exactly but she's kind of sympathetic in a, in a way um and and vic same thing is kind of sympathetic and leo is kind of sympathetic but when you get to freddie he's just a he's just a dick you know like like he just he and and i think that's the thing is he slides into this kind of banal evil you know like 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 uh roderick is capable of of these these kind of you know inspiring or impressive speeches whereas freddie is is just cruel and um and so you know you had I thought with with Morella being wrapped up that way, you know, it did remind me of Lygia, where you have the the narrator's second wife who is bound in in funeral vestments at the end, and and or funeral not vestments, but but uh, habiliments, I guess, at the end, and and then is reborn as his as his first wife, or he's crazy. I mean, take your pick. Um, and I thought that might be where they were going with that, but then of course the removing of the teeth, you know that. That's that's uh, Bernice, except that in in Poe's story, Bernice, there's like this weird erotic thing going on with those teeth. That's really kind of creepy and maybe doesn't bear thinking about too much, but it's it's there. Um, Whereas here it's cruelty here. It is. It is just it is. It is just it's just torture. Um, And so if we if we had any sympathy left for for Frederick, um, we i mean we've just lost it it's gone there and i agree to me to me frederick um he's pitiful at first but once he moves into this territory yeah he's he's irredeemable 
Um, he gets what he deserves. He's he's full Donald Trump Jr. at this point, I think, where it's, it's yeah, just no, no the pity coke. for this yeah, guy. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. Well, and also just like a lesser version of the father. And it's just like yeah. you have nothing going for you. Um, yeah. I, I did love, there's a particular line I wanted to shout out here where Roderick uh, is talking with June and he she calls him a monster and he says, no, dear, I'm Victor Frankenstein. You're the monster. Uh, I thought that was a really good line. We've covered Frankenstein in the past, so I yeah, always yeah, love yeah. it comes full circle to to an older project. But um, yeah, she's she's his like project. She's his proof of concept. Um, the, I love that there's this ongoing lie about it not being addictive, even though everybody knows it is, including the doctor, uh, who's like clearly like on the payroll of them, so he doesn't want to admit it. He kind of has to whisper even when he dares to say anything that goes against that that company line. He's petulant, right? He's just a child. Everything he's doing, he's just spoiled his whole life. He hasn't had to actually work for any of the stuff that he's got. And I think this has been mentioned already in this episode, but love how Veronet says to to Freddie that Roderick failed you, but it's it's still no excuse for being the way that you are. Um, yeah. and that like finally like that that being said and like that's all the children up to this point. And yeah. and also pointing to all these other people who are children of billionaires and things like that too. It's like you don't have to follow in the in the same footsteps that these people are taking. Like you can take uh, ownership of it at some point and um, you know still be a good person. But you choose you know more more often than not, it's the path of least resistance. So you choose to to follow in the cruelty or the whatever else is is being done. So many of them fall right into that trap. And and what is what is Flanagan saying by the fact that. Only Lenore is the only one who seems to be redeemable and when all the other ones fall right into it. Yeah, and the funny thing is, I, I mean, I guess I was thinking that that what happens to Freddie is also like the black cat, you know, that the narrator of the black cat is an alcoholic. Um, and so it's the dangers of the demon rum kind of thing, you know, and and his his characters who is there? Somebody else who does some laudanum. I'm sure there's a few. Um, so I I mean, what happens to Freddie in, in some ways, yeah, it's it, both Donald Trump Jr., but then it's also more generally speaking, um, that Poe concern with people who are in obsessive states of consciousness and and you know what else is what else is addiction. Um and, and so in in and he never, you know, it's interesting, Freddie never um spaces. Well, I guess he he spaces putting in the the nightshade stuff into into his coke, but that's supernatural intervention right there. What seems to happen with everybody else is is more like like sort of cognitive or or something as if as if the disease that's affecting their father is is in some way as if they all have like early onset versions of it or, or something like that which i guess would be the sort of naturalistic explanation um because the, the 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 show plays with that a lot it probably could have gotten away without having verna there and still justified justified a lot of it by just saying well these are people who are just there sleep deprived they're they're on various substances um this is all just the product of the brain that's a really interesting point to bring up because i love horror stories that are ambiguous like that that you you you're at the end you're often like was it really supernatural or was there something else going on and we're getting an unreliable story we're getting unreliable narration and this story it keeps providing some sort of fuel for that fire, some 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 opportunities for us to see it that way. But I do think Flanagan abandons it at a certain point and kind of puts all his cards on the table and says yeah. this this is actually supernatural. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And that that's a choice. You know, it, it, he he leans into that unsubtle nature of it. This is the message. This is what you're seeing. Um, I, I guess our 
like I'm a little bit divided on whether or not I think that's stronger um, because I, I miss a little bit of the ambiguity and, and kind of would have liked a little bit of that. I would have liked to have a debate on here with you two about how true, how real was this? Whereas I don't think there's much of a debate to be had that this was supernatural throughout. Um, perhaps preying on some real psychological things that were occurring in each character, you know, kicking them up a notch with like Roderick, for example, making his hallucinations um, play out. But then even that is said to be like, no, this isn't hallucinations. You're actually being haunted by your dead children. Um, right. So it, it kind of it kind of comes out and says, no, this is this is supernatural. Yeah, and he says that the that the ghosts have have given him all this information that he's relaying. You know, I mean, fair enough. At a certain point, Dupin is like, wait, how do you know all? This? You can't know all this stuff. And oh, their ghosts have told me. And for and of course, I kept thinking too that that I was waiting for Dupin to say, you know, you're just setting up an insanity defense. That's why that's why you've had me over here to tell me all this stuff, because you know that no court like any any court is is going to listen to this. Any jury is going to listen to this and think this man is insane. He's telling me about the ghosts of his children. He's he's telling me he knows these things he can't possibly know. And that a good lawyer like Pim would say are absolute speculation, you know, inadmissible uh, and and so on. But yeah, it, it never, but I guess there's a limit, you know, I have to be fair to, to Flanagan, right? There's only so much you can cram into, you know, your eight hour mini series, right? So the whole series really, but especially in these final episodes, we get a lot of recitations of Poe's actual words, uh, mostly from poetry, um, some often through Roderick, who's quoting it, but Verna uh, recites a poem at one point, not in its entirety, but, but at least large chunks of it. Um, as a Poe fan, I like it. I like hearing the words. I like hearing poetry. I think it's something that we don't hear a lot these days, and I was glad to see it in a, you know, a major show like this. Um, but part of me kept wondering if this is getting a little too fan service-y at a moment. I'm like, I, what, is, what is this doing for the, for the non-Poe reader? Is it working for them? Because um, we, we get a good chunk of it. Um, I'm, I guess I'm of two minds. I think where I ultimately fall is I'm a fan of it. I like it. Um, but I can see the arguments against it. So I'm curious what you two thought of, of the, the inclusion of all the poetry. What was weird about it to me is I thought, so this is a universe where Edgar Allan Poe does not exist. I kept thinking but, that too. Yeah, right. Because because when he says, you know, Annabelle Lee, blah, blah, blah. And, and that's original in, in this. That's original to him. No one has ever, she's not like, oh, you and your Edgar Allan Poe. No, you know. <laughs> she like, calls him Shakespeare. Right. There's never a moment where where somebody is like, isn't it funny? We got this crazy gothic name, um, you know, like like there's there's um, there, there's none of that. So I was I'm always happy to have poetry included anywhere, you know, and, and I um, I've come to appreciate Poe's poetry a lot more, as, as I said, as I've gotten older. But I think the poem that Verna that, that Verna recites actually kind of works for Verna because it's this cryptic kind of poem. You know, the Annabelle yeah. Lee poem the is very much like the da, 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 you know, and, and whereas, um, yeah, the city and the sea is, is much more sort of cryptic and, and kind of uh, like the kind of thing an immortal might, might enjoy memorizing and, and puzzling yeah. over. I went and I had, I, I went and looked it up a little bit. And apparently that poem is all, because I've read it before, but it'd been a long time, but it's apparently about a personification of death that rules over a city. Um, so I thought interesting choice to have this character reciting it, right? Yeah, I actually like rewound it and shut my eyes and listened to the poem a second time, and I, I that's kind of the conclusion that I came to as well. And I was like, man, that's such a cool way of having this death personified character sort of tell the story. But I also couldn't help but think, like, man, people must just be whenever they have a conversation with Roderick or Verna, 
they must just think they're so brilliant because they're just like they're coming up with these these masterworks that Poe's created right. off the off right. the top of their head, and they're they're just like oh I just yeah this is just something I thought of in the moment just now, right. and um, I guess that gives some some credence to her saying that Roderick would have been a poet because he's so yeah. poetic in the way that he says some of this stuff. Yeah, and that's the way they can explain it. Um, yeah. yeah. I think Annabelle Lee is like I, I that's a lovely poem. I really liked it when I you know, when I read that one. Um that one to me, the fact that he kept returning to it, it worked a little less well. I don't know, something about getting these just little chunks of it aren't as effective as like kind of being under its whole spell when you read it as a poem. Um whereas uh like the oh the four Annie poem that the priest is reading like reciting, like I thought that worked really well. There's a scene we're about to get to in the final episode where um that we're getting the Raven being quoted. Um, I thought that was a cool scene and it worked. So really, I think it was just the Annabelle Lee one that didn't quite land um, just because we kept getting little chunks of it and we never really got a, like, I don't think anyone walks away really getting a sense for like what that poem is. You're just getting a little taste of it here and there. Yeah. And I wanted to say that uh, as a Poe fan, I, I don't know how audiences will react to it. Not if they weren't familiar with his work, but as a Poe fan, I actually really enjoyed hearing it for the most part. Um, and it's almost like getting like a music video for a poem or something like that. The way that Flanagan <laughs> sets it up in ways. Yeah. 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 And she's, she's so striking and her delivery is so it, it's, it's shot so well and her delivery is, is so, uh, is so fine. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it is something to, to see. I, um, I kept thinking too, that there was something, you know, he mentions, he, he quotes Annabelle Lee and he also, uh, he also obviously quotes the quotes, the Raven, you know, and these are both, these are both poems about about death, where death has just kind of happened, you know that that which which is a very early nineteenth century kind of thing. People just they they they, you know, God, they got pneumonia and they died. Let alone tuberculosis and and whatever else, you know. And and these are these are poems in in which suffering is just it's part of human existence. It's it's part of of part of what happened and and so you know therefore so is grief and so they're both they're both very much poems of grief and and uh and of mourning and and there's some way in which those poems their their concerns are kind of at tension with with what fortunato pharmaceuticals is all about you don't have to suffer you don't have to and and madeline you don't have to die even or at least a sort of a cheap copy of you can can live on i love that uh, let's get into the final one. Yeah, so episode eight is called The Raven. In 1979, Griswold makes Roderick his right-hand man after he saves the company at the court hearing. On New Year's Eve, Madeline and Roderick serve Griswold poison Amontillado and wall him into the basement, murdering him. They plan to frame him and have Roderick replace him on the board, taking over Fortunato. The siblings spend time at Verna's bar to establish an alibi and make a deal for her for wealth and power. In exchange, the Usher bloodline will die right before the siblings do, who will die together. In the present, Verna offers Pym a deal of immunity for his crimes, but he refuses. Verna regrets having to kill the innocent Lenore and reveals that her mother will form a beneficent foundation in her name before granting Lenore a peaceful death. Verna had then instructed Roderick to call Dupin to confess. Before doing so, Roderick had invited Madeline to the old house where he killed her and replaced her eyes with sapphires to give her a queenly send-off. After Roderick finishes confessing, a blind and deranged Madeline emerges from the basement, revealed to have only appeared dead like their mother, and strangles Roderick, causing the house to collapse. Juno inherits and dissolves Fortunato, creating a drug rehab foundation. 
Pim is arrested and Dupin retires. Verna leaves a token on each usher grave while reciting Poe's Spirits of the Dead. Let's circle through and talk about some of the stuff we haven't already touched on because we've got ahead of ourselves in some cases. Um, I really liked the the line from Annabelle Lee in the past where she tells Madeline, you are so small. And um, much like what we've seen with Roderick, where like people, like they're like taking these lines and then repurposing them. She takes it, she writes it on the brick. And she points that at, 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 at Griswold. And it's like, this was so painful when someone said it to me, even though I kind of shrugged it off. Clearly it stuck with her because she's, she's using it now. Um, and this, by the way, was something that I called, I think, in our in our first episode when we, we talked about this. I said, I think we're getting Fortunato uh, as, as you know, the character Fortunato from the, from the Casco Macchiato in this uh, Griswold character who's going to be dressed up as this jester um, because there was the talk of the bells and the story and him being kind of in Motley. Um, and and I was I was happy to see uh, we were right on with that one. Michael Truco uh, played Rufus Griswold, and uh, he was so hateable. And he, he was <laughs> as really was blood. his as was his namesake. Yeah, yeah. And he did such a great job of setting up this character that like we I wanted to see him his downfall. Um, and getting yeah getting to see the Casco of Montiato play out in the ways that we we assumed it might uh, was a lot of fun. I mean, and, and like it was just as brutal. And getting the characters back and forth was was worth the, the price of having that scene in uh, there because we get to see uh, Madeline and Roderick uh, sort of get their just desserts as they're putting him into this wall and yeah just it, it kind of like um, it, it echoes right the the echoes happen they've and it's, it's interesting right that they've they've spiked Griswold's drink but there's also the sense that that they're happy that he's 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 gonna live just long enough to know what they're doing to him because and and so when when Roderick spikes Madeline's drink, um, he uses the does he use the wrong amount on purpose or does he is he just not as good as as Madeline was? You know, there's an interesting kind of symmetry there. But what the symmetry means, um, I'm not sure. Is there some on on Roderick's part? Is you know he, he says, oh Madeline, you're doing everything you have to do. Don't worry about it. Deposing me, all this kind of stuff. But is there also a little bit of anger and resentment there as as well? And and I think what surprised me was we got the uh, the brain hook uh, that that ancient Egyptian implement. And I knew that as soon as we got the eyes, that the sapphire eyes, I thought, okay. So number one, he's pissed off a goddess. He's he's removed. He's he's stolen the eyes of a, of a goddess. That that never goes well. And and Poe has this kind of obsession with um, classical, you know, Rome, Greece, and and Egypt as as well. These for him, I, I think, are, are real touchstones. So the 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 um, the Egyptian references worked right, um, but. Uh, but with the nose hook, I thought, well, he, he takes the little the brain hook thing. He takes that, and I thought, well, that you know, so much for Madeline. But he doesn't. He only he only replaces her eyes. Even when he takes the the knife, I thought, oh my god, he's really gonna like mummify her. He's gonna take her organs out and and so on. For some reason, I thought that it was implied that maybe he did give her the full treatment and pull her brain through her. But I guess she she came back, so I guess that's not possible. But but well, I guess right. I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's an, uh, that is a good point, though. I just assumed that it was naturalistic when she returns, but she it may a lot not. Of blood, be. you know, coming out of this area. Maybe I don't know. It, it was something supernatural going on? Is what we talked about with the mother too. Is like, was she just not yeah. dead, or was she a reanimated, vengeful corpse? And I, th I think yeah, that yeah. goes right back to the to the story 
that we're based on, right? With with the fall of the House of Usher and what's happening there with the sister returns is is she just not dead or is she a, a zombie of some kind? Um, I did love to see that Roderick and Madeline are the two at the core of this and their bond. They chose to make this deal and they said it's us against the world, and you could see their their mutual destruction if they stayed true to one another and left the world sort of in like as a as a team and they said we've done this together we made this choice and now it's come due and okay you know we we live the life we live and she tries to almost set that up but she's already betrayed him yeah and then he betrays her and ultimately much like the house itself this is a house divided this is this is a pair of people who are not in uh, harmony with one another and in fact are antagonists to each other and they die at each other's throats literally um, which I, I think is the most appropriate end for these two. We get Lenore, the AI, texting Nevermore over and over again. I thought we might get something more from this plot line. Um, this is something that I'm fascinated with. Um, it, it, it's it's something that has come up in my fiction before. I'm like trying to talk about artificial intelligence and, and what it would mean to have another duplicate self. And I was like, oh, this is a really interesting space. This is something I'm really into. All we really get from it is this like texting bot. Um, yeah. which ultimately was a cool little reveal. And it does, it is, it does serve as a misdirect. I think for some viewers that maybe Lenore was still alive, I thought she was dead and that this was the AI pretty much as soon as that concept was introduced, but I'm not sure if everybody else was necessarily on that, on that path yet. Yeah, it got me, but I tend to be, I am very easily confused. So, um, <laughs> I really tend to be the person who's like, Oh my God, you mean the Butler did it? You know, that's uh... <laughs> Uh, we talked about that raining body scene. Um, I kept thinking about it's raining men. Song. It's raining men. Uh, <laughs> someone's going to put that, you know, with that song on right, it while we're looking at it. <laughs> yeah, no. um, but I thought it was good to like have Roderick confronted. And, and I just keep coming back to like Roderick makes a compelling villain slash protagonist. You know, he's that anti protagonist. I don't even want to call him an anti-hero because he's really not a hero at all, but he is like kind of the protagonist. We're following him closely and what makes him compelling is he does seem capable of feeling guilt. And he seems like he is capable of feeling like I caused this to befall my children and I feel terrible about it. Um, he's, he's, he seems genuinely human in a way that I think we want to believe that some of these villains could, could one day feel guilt for the things they've done. I just continue to have my doubts. Um, but ultimately, I think it does make for a compelling story to have him be this way and to have him ultimately um, it hurts him with every scene. I think that's one of the things that really sells me on his performance is like, you could see the pain, you could see the guilt. Um, and as far as like talking about adapting a Poe thing in so many of these stories, we have a character who is driven to that altered state due to some manner of guilt over what's being done or some manner of uh, friction between what should be and what is, and what you know, what they have caused, um, whether or not you want to call it guilt, it's it, there's some manifestation um, of of the evil they've done. Um, it can't be contained. It can't be like uh, you can't just go on and live a normal life and pose stories if you've done something truly horrific. It's going to come back and bite you. I think it's fascinating too that it takes all of his children dying, and he still doesn't feel guilty. And then he finally feels guilty when Lenore dies. And it's very in keeping with like the Raven, obviously that like, that's the, that like he's talking about Lenore, Lenore, Lenore. Um, there obviously wasn't all these other characters for, for that character to react to the deaths of, but 
he's such a detestable human being that like it's not one kid dying two kids dying three kids all six of his direct descendants die and then he's finally like the guilt-stricken Roderick we see that's that's meeting with Dupine it's all because of Lenore dying it seems as far as I can tell right 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 yeah I mean the one thing I, I will say um the younger Roderick did not strike me as a terribly like um lustful guy you know, we're, we're supposed to believe that 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 he has these four additional children outside of that original marriage. And the kids say to each other, who knows how many more of us there are, which which poses sort of interesting. Like, I wonder if there could be like a little sequel, like where there's like all these random people die, you know, that'd be cool. Um, but um, um, but so, so I think M would be a good inter uh, an interesting. Sequel oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. The interesting thing, too, just as an aside, is, is that Lenore calls. Uh, uh, Usher Grampus or Grampus, and that's the name of the boat that that Pym goes on in uh, oh. in the narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym. So oh. a little like a sort of deep cut Easter egg kind of thing. I said but, this last episode where I was like, I think every proper name we get in this entire show is a reference to something in a post story. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Probably. <laughs> it seems like it. Bill T. We'll find him somewhere. <laughs> It is interesting that ultimately we do have what I would almost call a happy ending for a pretty horrific show in that the house falls and we hear that through June it's being repurposed. It's now Phoenix. It's this Phoenix Foundation and it's actually saving people. These horrible people get their comeuppance. Uh, the the um, Dupin, who we C is a good man, I think, throughout, and, and we're sort of worried about him in this situation. It seems like he's being set up to be killed um, by Usher. You, 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 I, I was worried for him. He escapes, and he's able to return to his husband and his family and, and sort of realize that that's his true riches. I think he even says, like, I'm the richest man in the world. I'm going to go back to my family. There's really kind of a nice bow put on this otherwise dark, depressing story with a lot of unlikable characters. That's always an interesting decision that a creator has to make in the horror space. And I'd love to get your thoughts on this, John, and, and you know, don't, don't spoil your own novel. <laughs> but I'm curious, you know, because I haven't got to the end of it yet, so I don't know what decision you make. As a horror writer, you're faced with like a few options when you get to the end of a, of a tale. It's like, is it ultimately a happy ending is it ultimately a oh my god leave him with a punch in the gut feeling sick kind of ending is it an it lives ending people talk about where it's like it's one but then all of a sudden oh the monster's still alive um right. what are your thoughts on endings in horror and are, and are, are they more difficult to achieve than other kind of fiction or is that just kind of par for the course in fiction i, I think it's just fiction in general to be honest i i mean um Man, I feel like it was E.M. Forrester, maybe, who said that, like, you know, the endings of novels are the hardest part of the novel to write, and every ending has something wrong with it, um, which is maybe a huge, but yeah. I mean, it, it's a sweeping generalization. On the other hand, it sort of takes the burden off you, you know? Oh, all right. Well, you know, we do the best we can. I am of of two or three or four minds. You know, there's okay. there's a movement right now. People talk about horror with heart, and they want this horror that um, ultimately is in some way reassuring to them and i i guess you can find that in a variety of, of different ways but it it clearly seems to lean towards the happy ending or or the 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 quasi happy ending which i think is what we is what we get here you know there there's i mean i i think i think there's the feeling right with um with with verna placing all of those objects on the different uh tombstones that that this is us we've seen this entire how this entire family destroyed itself and they were bad people 
<laughs> they or they succumb to their baser uh, impulses. So there's a form of of justice or something like that that was a particularly harsh justice that was served by this. Um, and I uh, I don't know if I could have handled the story where the ushers all got away with it, you know. Right. <laughs> so no, like they're just in court still, and the attorney general of New York is like, they're guilty, I tell you. Um, <laughs> But uh, uh, so, uh, but but I also feel like like just sort of thinking generally um, about horror narratives. Um, I I do enjoy horror narratives that that leave you at least unsettled. Um, I mean, I think sometimes the the hand popping out of the grave uh, it was scary the first time, but now we're like like it's almost comforting. Ah, oh, look at the way they got me at the end there with that little stinger. You know, I think that the um, the horror narrative um there, there's a, a fine uh independent movie called lake mungo that that manages to do this it manages to have an ending that completely it causes you to completely reevaluate the, the the previous film there's, there's a much more sort of um over the top korean film um the wailing which which has a similarly weird and actually ends with a fishing metaphor too so way to go um but it's um it, it it ends in this sort of weird unsettling kind of way that that sticks in my mind for me those i guess are the endings that i i really i really prefer you know because i i remember um man stephen king's christine which was the first stephen king novel i read and i say that was the one that like you know boom and in, in an instant i was a horror writer um that has an unsettling ending that I still remember. And I don't know when the last time I read that book was. I, I know I have read it at least once or twice since I first read it when I was 14. But I could tell you that when I read it when I was 14, I like it, it was it stuck with me. It has stuck with me since then. Um, so has the ending of I mean the ending of, of Pet Cemetery is a little more grand guignol, but nonetheless, um, that stuck with me too. So I, I appreciate people can say, hey, I just want to come to a book and read it to be consoled um, for escapist fantasy or whatever. No hard, you know, no harm, no foul. That's awesome. Uh, the kind of stuff I, I guess I prefer in terms of of writing and then even in terms of reading is the stuff that that kind of lingers with me. I like that. And it is always ironic to to think about Stephen King and how he has this, I think, somewhat unearned reputation as being particularly bad at endings like you can write a great novel but he doesn't know how to end yeah, yeah. It. Um, well whereas, that's the joke in the second it film right of the recent two right yeah 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 it gets lampshaded in that in that movie um but you know we we've covered a bunch of king on this podcast he's a frequent subject um and i was just on a panel at world fantasy where i i, where I moderated a panel about him and um yeah it's it's funny how he he does have some also really iconic ending endings and endings that stick with people um, he's just written so much. I think he's got a little bit of everything. Yeah, no, I, I think so. And I, I think, um, you know, there there were books, um, 112263 ends in this bittersweet kind of way. Uh, Revival ends in utter horror. Um, and I kind of love it for that reason. <laughs> For that reason, <laughs> because there's there's a certain kind of like yeah you want to talk about like heavy metal or maybe punk rock kind of of uh, yeah you know that <laughs> that uh, uh, that'll be the screen cap for this episode um, that uh, uh, <laughs> but you know the, there's this certain feeling of of just sometimes ferocity feels more honest I, I guess and that's that's unfortunate because it isn't always sometimes the happy ending is the honest ending and there's there's uh, King has talked about, uh, you know, uh, being young enough to still believe in unhappy endings. Um, 
And um, I guess that means I'm still young because I, I do believe in unhappy endings, but I'm okay with happy endings too. Yeah. What a completely long way to give a wishy-washy answer. <laughs> Well, here we are at the end of the series. Um, it all that's left to do is to to sort of cap off our thoughts on this and cast a vote on which we thought was better. Whether it was the the short story by Edgar Allan Poe, we decided we're going to focus in on just the story, even though we could be talking about a lot more. Just the story. We're going to weigh that against the show, um, and we're going to have you go last, John, as a potential tiebreaker. We'll see how it plays out. Um, we haven't discussed this beforehand. James, do you want to start first? I'm going to get off on a technicality here. If we're just talking about how Fall of the House of Usher post story versus the Fall of the House of Usher and what Flanagan is doing here with this miniseries, I'm going to take the the miniseries because I think it did a lot of interesting things in the post space. It's doing this modern bleakness of the situation that we're in. Um, and then threading together all of the, I thought that as much as maybe I, I agree with you, Luke, there was some repetitiveness to the nature of having each episode pointing to one, one specific post story, the way that they thread the needle and thread all of these intertwining post stories that were never meant to go together, together in a, in a fun and compelling story that came out around Halloween. I just really gave myself over to the series and had a, had a really fun time with it. And that, that part of me that wanted just like a fun horror show that would go for it and it, it had like taboo sexuality and like over the top gore and all the things that that I couldn't have even imagined that Flanagan would do in a Netflix adaptation of Poe um, I kind of liked and I mentioned in a previous episode how Poe is something that everybody knows so it feels like a safe space to experiment and do something different and I felt like that that's why I'm going to take the show here quick aside uh, I was in Florida uh, recently with a bunch of my extended family and someone who doesn't know I do a podcast came up to me and they said I hear you're you're a writer and I was like yeah and they're like you look just like Edgar Allan Poe <laughs> <laughs> and I, I just got such a kick out of that uh, because uh, what we were covering right at the moment, they had no idea. Yeah, that's a compliment. And I was right? like, well, maybe he doesn't normally have the beard, but I could see the the hair and the mustache, maybe. Um, so I, I think I can speak with some authority as someone who looks <laughs> a little bit like Poe. Um, no, it's I was torn on this one because I really enjoyed the show. Um, I, as I talked about in our Hunting of Hill House coverage, I go I went through a journey with Flanagan. I have some misgivings about Doctor Sleep. Like, there are certain things that like I really like, and then certain choices that I'm not as big a fan of. Um, I really like this one from 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 the jump, you know, even if, if it had a couple of spots that uh, weren't quite as up to the, the standard of everything. I kind of got what he was putting down here. I liked the unsubtle, the punch in the face, the the angry. This is an angry show. I think you said, John, I really like that description of it. Um, and then reading the story, of course, of course, it's a classic. It's gothic. It does the thing that I love that Poe does where like every little description of the house and of the landscape, everything echoes back into the same theme and the same story being told. And just every line is quotable. Um, and there's a little bit of that blasphemous nature of like, how dare you not? How dare you not give this to Edgar Allan Poe? He's, you know, who, who he is. You know, who are we talking about here? It's like when we did Shakespeare in the past, like how dare you not pick Shakespeare for everything? Um, but I think I'm going to give it to the show here, too, um, as much as, as it kind of hurts me, as much as I love Poe. Um, and and I'll just say that, I, you know, it's not my favorite story. I like The Fall of the House of Usher. It's not my favorite Poe story. So maybe that is coming into play a little bit, too. But, yeah, I was on the fence, but I'm going to give it to the show. Yeah. Again, too, if it was all of Poe's stories that are referenced in this versus yeah, that would be Flanagan's hard. work, I think that Poe might take it. But that's not that's not what we've. You know, yeah. that's not the, the argument we've given ourselves here. Honestly, I was more on the I was more on the side of Poe, 
going into this discussion. But as often happens when we have our episodes, sometimes I'm swayed a certain way. Um, and it kind of pushed me over into Flanagan's territory. But I'm curious, John, ignore what we said. Where are you at with this? And what did you think? So here's the thing, right? On the one hand, I would agree with you guys. I think that there's a lot of ways in which you have to give it to the show. It's eight hours long, um, however many hundred pages of of script that must have been and, and hours and hours of dialogue and 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 so on. So from you know, from that narrative standpoint, there's a richness to this thing that um that the story can't compete with. You know, it's it's a story. Um what the story I I guess has going for it, right, is this kind of dreamlike feel. And, and although it is dense, it's it's not the worst of post stories to try to read. I mean, there are some stories that have not aged particularly well, but it, it certainly is not, not the Telltale Heart or or the Mask of the Red Death. You know, it it takes yeah. takes a little bit of work to to get through, especially because of all that descriptive detail. And so, in in that regard, you know, there are ways in which the the story seems as much like a kind of a poem. You know, as if Poe is just trying to get this this singular kind of effect, and he's just trying to kind of wig you out you know um and um and, and we get to the end of the house that looks like a face collapses on itself and we're just like wait was it what what just happened you know i guess the the caveat i guess is is that you know what poe does right with this story is is to make a kind of a structure uh, pardon the pun that that flanagan can play with and play and play in but then the you know the 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 question right w- would be what does Flanagan do with that what does he do with what he's given and I think what he does with what he's given is is pretty remarkable and and pretty and I I'll, you know this is thinking about it in relation to to some of his stuff as well to to the uh, haunting of Bly Manor and the haunting of Hill House and and so on you know he does change up the tone here he does change up the tone from um i mean midnight mass I, I think might be my favorite of his works and i think that that might be the the most kind of well, well-rounded in a stephen king kind of way I, I guess sort of narrative character kind of sense um but this uh this yeah this is savage this this is this is unapologetically savage and and it's kind of refreshing in in a way to see Flanagan I think he's a consistent enough filmmaker at this point that he could you know throw 8 hours to the wall right see what sticks right um whereas here he's he's still I think trying to do something kind of interesting and and trying to push he's not abandoning his old techniques and some of his, you know, old, uh, you know, sort of visual signatures, but he is trying to do something, something a little different. So, um, so yeah, I, I would, I would give it to, to Flanagan um, and no doubt will be visited by the angry spirit of Edgar Allan Poe. I so thanks. <laughs> I felt like you were on a journey, even with that, with that. Description. Yeah. That, I, was I was thinking, like, do I want to bail out at the last moment to bail out at the last? No, no, we went for it. <laughs> it's hard. It's hard to pick against Poe as a writer, right? It's like, Oh yeah, I'm going to get cursed for doing that. Um, I'm going to start hearing a beating heart later for daring right, to do right, that. Or a raven cawing or something. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're going to have to get returned to Poe, I think. We're going to have to get into some of those other adaptations. I don't know if I've ever seen any of them. So um, I would love to get into. I've missed a lot of older films. So the recent Netflix film, uh, what is the Pale Blue Eye, which is an adaptation of a Louis Bayard novel in which Poe figures as a character, but which also has sort of allusions to some of Poe's stories. the, the film is actually, to, to be honest with you, uh, much stronger than I than I was anticipating. I don't know why. I think it you know, got what, some weird mixed reviews when it first came out, but then I've since heard people liked it. Yeah, it's worth a look. It's 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 a good use of your time. 
Well, uh, here at the end, I wanted to ask you, John, uh, where can listeners find your stuff, find you online? Uh, and also, is there anything that we should be on the lookout for as far as like upcoming work for you? Uh, you can find me on all the usual social media sites, whatever particular letter they're under these days. Mm. And um, I uh, I do have a blog that I update erratically. Um it's Mr. Gaunt. If you just look for Mr. Gaunt, the web presence for John Lang, and you'll you'll uh, you'll find it. And uh, my stuff's all available at the Evil Empires. And uh, but you should totally order it through your local independent bookstore and and support them. And um, yeah, I got a bunch of short stories coming out and different things. Uh, as I said, for the moment, I, I guess the, I'm trying to get done get this next novel done. Although that's probably going to be about another year till. Uh, I'm through with that. But um, I have a story coming out. Ellen Datlow has a, an anthology called Christmas and Other Horror Stories or something like that. And I have a story in uh, in that. So, uh, so yeah, along with a bunch of amazingly talented people. So, um, so yeah, take a look at that. that. That's one you should be able to find in your local bookstore. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, this has been a delight to speak with you. Um, yeah, I'm glad you we too. were able to, to reconnect after after years ago when I met you at ReaderCon. Um, this was this was great. Thanks a lot. Thank you, guys. There's nothing like great conversation, great smart conversation. Thanks, John. It's been a pleasure. The pleasure is all mine. So if you enjoyed this episode and us having John Langan on as a guest, if you enjoyed us talking about the fall of the House of Usher, please let us know in the form of a rating and review on whatever app you chose to listen on. And if you're on YouTube, subscribe to our channel, leave us a comment. Uh, we'd love to hear from you that way. And also make sure to connect with us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Blue Sky, TikTok, everywhere you can find us, please do. And if you'd like to support this podcast another way, we do have a Patreon. It's patreon.com slash inktofilm. And on there, we get all kinds of bonus episodes where we talk about other adaptations uh, of, of works that we're covering on the main feed. Now that we've just covered Poe, I think we've opened the door to a lot of other adaptations. I know there are other versions of The Fall of the House of Usher. So uh, that would be one that we might go to, you know, other versions of The Pit and the Pendulum. There's lots of stuff that's on the table, and that would come out first on our uh, Patreon. So definitely check that out if you'd like to support us. And thank you to Mark Vandermulen for our intro and outro music. It's the track The Hunt. All right. So all that's left to do here is for those of you who have stuck around to the very end, we're going to go ahead and announce what our next project's going to be. And that's going to be uh, The Hunger Games, uh, a book and a, sh and a movie that I have seen. It's been a few years. I'm, I'm excited to get back to it. We thought it would be fun to revisit that now that there's this new Hunger Games uh, book and movie, I think, that are both out. Um, or the movie's coming out, the book's already out. Um, so, I, you know, it's going to be a time where people are going to be thinking about The Hunger Games. I thought it'd be fun to return to that source, right? That first one. I remember reading it when it came out. It was a massive craze, obviously. Every, you Absolutely. know, everyone's at least somewhat familiar with it. So, yeah, let's get back into it. I think the new one's called like The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes or something along those yeah, lines. Yeah, I realized I didn't know the name of it <laughs> as I was talking. So I'm something like, I'm not going like to try it. But it's, that sounds right. But yeah, it's fun to get into these YA projects sometimes. And it lets us, you know, we had fun with Twilight earlier in the year. So hopefully we can have similar, you know, fun with some, yeah. a story like this. Yeah, and, and I, you know, ultimately, I think uh, I was more fond of The Hunger Games. Um, anyway, that's a big discussion. We'll get into it. We'll get into yeah. it next week, uh, <laughs> and hopefully you return for that. Uh, but this one's run on long enough. So until next time, keep adapting. Keep adapting.